Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey, everybody, I want to remind you about our friends at Massozymes. I just bought some of these. They're really excellent. Uh, If you have issues like bloating and cramping, gassiness, if you've ever tried enzymes or they haven't worked, think about bio-optimizers. They're one of the few supplement companies who have the best formulations and highest quality ingredients, and they work. I, I actually buy them myself. They are, they, I'm a customer. And right now, you can get a bottle of Massozymes for free. All you need to do is pay a small shipping fee, and there's no catch, no tricks, no nothing. They are so confident in their products, they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. I am positive you'll be satisfied, because if you're not, get your money back. Massozymes, of course, is a full-spectrum formula with five different kinds of protease, contains all the key enzymes for optimum digestion. Massozymes ensures that all the protein you eat will get broken down. Many individuals suffer from digestive issues. I'm one of them. And Massozymes and P3OM and these bio-optimizers products have really helped me. So I strongly suggest you head over to their site, grab a bottle before they either run out or take down this free offer. It is massozymes.com slash Drew Free. I mean, you have nothing to lose. Let's do it right now. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com forward slash Drew Free. Not Dr. Drew Free. It's all one word, D-R-E-W-F-R-E-E. And if you don't do it right now, I wonder what is wrong with you. It's free. You'll automatically be given access to a unique coupon code to claim your free bottle. Again, limit one per household because these are very valuable products and we're giving it to you for free. Offer is valid while supplies last. I like their products. You're going to like their products. Again, it is massazymes.com slash Drew Free. I don't know how we do this, but take advantage of it. Welcome back to the Dr. Drew Podcast, everybody. Support that pirate ship. Keep the winds in the sail of the Corolla Empire, everyone. Support the people that support us. Also, do check out drdrew.com. We have... I do a streaming show there. I try to do it every day where I just interact, ask, answer questions that people write on their stream. And then on the weekends, we do a live call-in show. Um, my current guest, I might ask him to, one of these days to get into that call-in show. Um, and so that's around 3 o'clock either Saturday or Sunday Pacific time. And you can call in and be a part of that show. Usually we have guests on that one too. And drdrew.tv. And don't forget After Dark and Adam and Drew. And it's all there at drdrew.com and drdrew.tv. We appreciate you guys supporting all that and the people that make this thing possible. Brandon Stogsdale is back. Uh, what are the other ones, Gary? What are the previous uh, numbers that he's done? So you can hear his whole story. Got him? Uh, I believe one of them's 14, but let me look it up right here. So early. So you were in the original. He was very early. Very early in the 16, whole podcast. Er, sorry, 61 and 14. Would say it again, 14 and 61. Correct. So crazy for me because now are we on to what, like 500 and something? or Oh, at least. Uh, you know, and so you were here in the beginning. Well, thank you for being part of it. Yeah, it was an honor then and it's an honor now. The boy, the boy with the gun is the book that uh, made me drag him in here, from incarceration to higher education. Uh, it's available on Amazon, also the website. Since we started talking to Brandon, he has uh, been through a professional training program, uh, degrees in psychology, chemical, de- chemical dependency. What's your training there? Is your you licensed in something with that? Chemical dependency professional yeah. and also a master's in addiction. There you go. Uh, doctorate candidate in clinical psychology, 10 years of experience working with young people. And t- tell briefly, your, I mean, if you don't mind us revisiting it since it was 500 shows ago that we right. did it, uh, what got you in prison and what got you into recovering? Yeah, so it starts with uh, my mother when she was younger after her second marriage. She was a, 
survivor of sexual assault and she became pregnant and, and she got pregnant with me and had me. Unfortunately, she dealt with some mental health, addiction, uh, some poverty type stuff. I was molested when I was about four and just started snowballing to got really angry, had all this pent up stuff, had no emotional intelligence at all. Uh, didn't do well in school. Uh, just got really just depressed and decided to take my anger out, started getting into fights, um, started to get recognition and praise for this actions. And it just snowballed from there and there and led to at 16 years old, a 357 and eventually incarceration. So we were in a gun battle that luckily didn't kill anybody or something. Is that from a right? Yeah. I mean, looking back, it's really childish and I have a lot of remorse about this, but some guys beat up one of my good friends. They came and got me for help. I would have done. I would have done anything for them. So grabbed this gun. Words were exchanged. Adrenaline's pumping. I figured nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody's going to get in trouble because never have in the past. And uh, I pointed at the car just to scare them. And thank God nobody was hurt. But unfor- um, but unfortunately for me, I was sentenced at seventeen to four years in, uh, as an adult in prison. Mm-hmm. And in prison, you you did sort of your own cognitive behavioral therapy. It was very interesting how you sort of woke up during prison. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think the first thing that happened, because I was never good at school, and I, I think I read a graph that said, in the United States of America, on average, the more education you receive, the more money you make. And at that point, I was like, hey, money sounds good. Uh, why not look at this? So I started to try it, and I sucked just as bad as I've always sucked. I remember I'd get pissed and just slam the books shut in my cell and throw it across the wall. And then I was just thinking, like, well, if, uh, if we could teach a dog to catch a bone and bring it back to us, I could learn something that is difficult, and I just uh, was patient with myself. See, that, that's the, I'm so intrigued by your process and all this because people don't normally tolerate those little baby steps, and, and they don't have the motivation to, to shift in the right direction. What do you think that was? That is a good question. I, after my incarceration, met with an anthropologist at the University of Washington, and she she said it was a number of things. One, I had a lot of support from my family and friends. Uh, in prison? Yeah. Well, uh. yeah, from my, my friends the first year, uh. and then everybody kind of moves on with their life. Yeah. My family, though, however, was super dedicated, and it was there weekly, if not mm-hmm. biweekly. And then she said my faith was a big in, uh, factor in that turnaround. And then eventually, uh, I had this beacon of light in a dark prison cell. It was called Love Line at 10 p.m. <laughs> used to listen to you and uh, Adam every night and Crazy. got wisdom and wisdom and learned a lot. Huh. And then, and did that help you frame what you were learning with the books? Did it help kind of get you back to the books? I, I, I just – I think it most importantly – well, at first it was completely entertaining. I would just laugh. Like seriously, I'm just depressed in this little cell. And then turn it on this radio show, so I'd just be laughing. And then you guys would always be like, "Hey, go, where's your dad? Go, go get counseling." And and I was just like, "Well, I didn't grow up without a dad, but that's not a big deal for me." Right. And then I was like, "Well, I I'm, I started to really respect you and Adam." And I was like, "Well, if they're saying that's a big deal, you should look into it." So then I started to learn, and then eventually learned that I was uh, sexually abused. Something I thought was my fault at uh, four years old. And uh. I and I remember you told a guy, and I was listening there, and um. You were saying to him, hey, at that age, you know, you were four years old. You didn't have the brain capacity. How could you have – and it just hit me. Like that wasn't my fault. And I remember I just started crying mm-hmm. and I realized something that I was uh, was uh, afraid of or uh, just beat myself up and was really ashamed of and finally was able to start letting that go and then learn more and more and more. And, and uh, would we, was there a drug and alcohol piece too that you – 
Or not so much. That was just sort of incidental. Well, well so my mother was an alcoholic. Okay. What little I know about my birth father, he was an alcoholic. Uh-huh. Uh, my sister's 16th birthday was a kager. I think it was nine. My friends got drunk at that. But for whatever reason, I chose not to. And to this day, I don't know exactly what that was. Um, I'm starting to think that's just, again, my faith was like, God is like, if you go down that right route, there's no coming back. Yeah. And my mom, she would go to. Do, do you have um, Do you have a sense that you'd have momentum with that? Yeah, because, well, yeah. So, yeah, first off, my mom would have bring, she'd go to the hospital and bring these people back. And they were just hammered and just like, what is wrong with that guy? I remember, <laughs> and I remember one guy, we call him Shaky Tom. White milk skin, dark stringy hair, beady dark eyes, and he shook profusely. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Why does he shake that way?" And they said, "Because of drugs." And I was right. like, "Oh, okay." Yeah. But um, I took Percocet early on when I broke my foot riding dirt bikes and BMXing. And three days after taking Percocets, uh, I stopped taking them. And then all of a sudden, I got really uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I was like, "What's going on here?" Yeah. And I was like, "I need more Percocets." And yeah. I was like, "Whoa, addiction is real How and it's powerful." I was early teens. Yeah, so you could see it starting. What's your ethnic background? It's that's. I think we're French Canadian. My my from my mom's side, and maybe some native heritage. See, and the my, native stuff can really put that. Whenever I hear everybody in the family with addictive potential, that that native genetics is one of the ways that happens. Right. So maybe that's in there somewhere. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, but to this day, never had a drink of alcohol. Never had smoked a cigarette or did any drugs. Thankfully, it's funny your recovery. From what should we call it? Which from well, what do we call you recovered from? Because whatever it is, it reminds me of an alcohol and drug recovery, right? You know, it feels like that kind of recovery where you have sort of a, a spiritual awakening and you slowly make connection with other people and you slowly rebuild and find your way out. Actually, yeah, and I did attend AA while I was incarcerated. You told me that before, yeah, yeah. That's maybe where I got some of that. And everybody be like, "Hey, I'm Billy Bob, and I'm an alcoholic," and I'm like, "I don't know what to say, but I got addictive tendencies and okay. genetic predisposition." Fair enough. And I learned a lot in there too. Yeah. And did you get a sponsor in there? No. Yeah. Not. Not. I don't think I got that far. But uh, ultimately, um, just just I think the trauma of my past and just growing up without a father, how that impacted me, uh, just. The depression I had as a kid and just feeling insecure. And you eventually got trauma therapy. I did. That's how many years after prison? It was a few years after prison. And again, I'm, again, thankful to you. Like I would have never ever in my life went to therapy. Well, to be fair, you you and I met at a lecture in Puyallup, yeah. <laughs> Washington. And you said, would you mind reading this book? And I had something about it. I, I read it. And I was like, oh, my God, the story is fantastic. Yeah, you've been yeah. a paramount uh, part in a lot of my life uh, changes. Yeah. So thank you. Um, but yeah, I just decided to, um, after college, well, actually at first it was in prison. Uh, I tried to get a counselor in prison because you guys are saying, get it, just get a counselor. And they wouldn't see me because I was just you I was, sick enough. Yeah. I was just, I was, uh, just focusing on education there yeah. and sticking to myself. And then after I got out, I tried to go to the university counselor, told him my story and they were just like, Whoa, you, here's a referral. You need to talk to somebody else. And then I just let it go and here and there tried a little bit, but it wasn't after I did what you guys told me not to do. Like I, uh, I met a girl and I went crazy for her. The, all the Hollywood explosions went off, which you would say trauma run the other way. And I ran directly to it. And of course, In, intensity of lightning bolts, super intense. You want to know the craziest thing about this? So eventually after that heartache, I go to therapy because I'm just a mess. And um, I'm talking about how heartbroken I am. And the therapist is like, well, what about your parents? And I'm like, I don't want to talk about my parents. 
And um, so, and I it just it wasn't that cool. And then I'd finally talk about my parents, and she, she uh, would ask me more questions. And then afterwards, I'd go tell my friends. They're like, "Why do you like this girl so much?" And I was like, "I would say the word aloof. Not sure why." And then I go to my psychologist and talk about my mom some more. She's Use that like, word. She's like, your mom sounds aloof. And then I was like, Ugh, just started dry heaving, um, realizing that I'm like searching for something that I had a void early in my childhood. So then. Which now you know, of course. Right. Of course. Yep. So then trauma work, trauma work, trauma work. Did you do EMDR or just sort of emotionally focused trauma therapy? I think she's was psychodynamic, but yeah. used some cognitive behavioral therapy yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And so you want to explain to people what that means? Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and and psychodynamics because these are just words of people out there right i'm trained in cognitive behavioral therapy which just in the briefest of terms means our thoughts tend to come first in any given situation and how we think about it could be accurate or inaccurate and whatever we think could impact how we feel and how we feel tends to impact how we behave so the therapist just helps adjust the thinking right and we can and we can do that with memories too in the past where I thought I was a mistake because my birth father sexually assaulted my mother, and I was a, I was a, uh, a product of that, and I thought I was a mistake. And then in counseling, I realized no, somebody else made a mistake, and I didn't do anything wrong. Right. I, I wonder if your mom felt somehow that there was a something she something. A, obviously, it's a conflicted situation for her, and all that gets transferred down to you too. Right. And and she like she had a history of major depression. Mm-hmm. And alcoholism and and then some all that stuff and and to be fair like she 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 took care of me and then while i was incarcerated she visited every single week wrote me letters every single week good for her and still is she still ma- around yes yeah, she's still around big support so i just really appreciate her has she recovered some as a result of your improvement she stopped drinking yeah i think while i was incarcerated um and then she got married while i was incarcerated so somebody she, somebody good for her yeah i mean uh, have you ever heard of the adverse childhood experience scale? The oh, A scale. Of course, scales? I have. Uh, She's got like nine of them. Yeah, they both have high scores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that makes sense, right? That's what would attract each other, right? That's, right. That's, they're fixing each other, and sometimes that works, right? It doesn't have to fail if, if there's a good process to it, right? And uh, but it's it's um, it's navigating difficult waters, right? <laughs> so, so I've, I I like you gave me faith in CBT. Because I noticed that that's kind of what you were doing in prison was sort of a kind of a CBT process, and you really woke up as a result, right? And I was like, "Huh, that's that's amazing." I'm, and you really kind of woke up. You weren't you weren't a sociopath, but you were presenting as a sociopath, right? If you know I, what I mean? If I could go back in time and diagnose myself, I definitely had symptoms of conduct disorder, so, which is yeah, as a child, same kind of stuff, right? Right. right. The, uh, oppositional defiant conduct, right. so it becomes sociopathy in adulthood, right? But but I obviously I don't think you were that because I'm, I can't imagine you'd be as good as you are if you were a full blown that, right? Yeah. Right? Statistically, they say a lot of those who are diagnosed with conduct disorder they don't develop into antisocial. Oh, is that true? That's what I've read. In oh, the research that's interesting. I've read. Where do they go? They they. They, their brain develops. I, I mean, you, they grow out of it, right? I mean, you told me I didn't understand it until I was in my doc program. But you were talking about my anterior cingulate was oh, yeah. fully, oh yeah, functioning, and it it just wasn't. So that has to be a process. Uh, again, uh, learning more about my faith and religion, and like forgiving people and forgiving myself is a huge part, and counseling, mm. and then just yeah, focusing on empathy and how 
just l- l- thinking things through and thinking about the consequences of those axes, go, which goes back to CBT and Socratic dialogue and thinking things through. Right. And, and again, not perceiving consequences or not caring about consequences is sort of where you were before. Right. Right. And, and but any of it, I, I was stunned at how much it changed you. The CBT and uh, and you did it kind of on your own a lot of it yeah. to begin with and yeah that was that to me was very striking yeah right because when I, I got the University of Washington I started to learn about CBT and I was like wait a minute this stuff looks familiar I'm already doing yeah. that so yeah. so lo and behold now I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist and, and you find that and you do mostly adolescents I I, all- I did nine years at an agency that focused on children and adolescents. And then started private practice 2012, and I, I, I geared and marketed everything towards youth, but now I probably have more adults than youth now. Why do you think that is? Did they just grow up, people you were treating? or I, I don't know. I think – Because your story is such a youth story. It's so powerful. You would think a young person would really like relate to your recovery. Right. When I get a difficult... Oh, you know what, though? These, these days, adolescence is going until about age 30. So I'm wondering if maybe that's what we're seeing. No, I'm definitely it. seeing that. <laughs> so maybe that's why you're getting things people that should be adults right. but aren't really fully there yet, which is great because we need to get people into adulthood. Right. And those with trauma tend to be arrested. Right. Yeah. Oh, so you, are you focusing on trauma? Mainly, yeah. Trauma, addiction, depression, anxiety seem to be the... And uh, actually now sex addiction, which I didn't really choose. It chose me. And before I even knew anything, I didn't really believe it until I heard you start talking about it. And then I did research and realized, okay, this this is – It's a construct. It's, right. it's, it's something it, – it causes great pain for people and they can't control it. Yeah. And that's something. And they feel guilt and, uh, yeah. and then guess how they cope and then they do it again. Do more or right. do something else that's destructive. and Yeah. Uh, and so let, let's talk a little bit – we haven't quite fleshed out your story fully here. We got, we got to about 10 years ago, I think, right now, right? We'll fill out the rest of it. So you, you, the rest of the story was about training and relationships and and therapy. Right. Yeah. So lots of school. I've yeah. been in school. I'm still in school. I think I'm on my 17th year. Right. I love it. And yeah. I love it. So lots of schooling and lots of counseling. And again, uh, it was just a disaster in relationships. Um, kind of repeated that habit over and over <clears throat> until um, – I got into my doctorate internship, and then I met a young woman. And she happens to be sitting over there, maybe. She, she, my lovely wife. She's right there. Congratulations. Thank you. And then babies, and what, what's going on that way? Oh, there's a whole lot. So we um, we met um, uh, through internships, and I remember I found out she's oh, skied. you're in training too. Yes. Oh, I did not know that. She's getting her doctorate in marriage and family. Oh, congratulations! Therapy. Fantastic. Yep. So my, you guys are a powerhouse team. Do you have a I'm, – I'm yelling across the table at you. Is, do you have the kind of story that Brandon has or you're pretty straight? Okay. Got it. Yeah. She, Good. Yeah. Her – she is, was born and raised in Minnesota. Yeah. D.C.? Oh, oh, yeah. She was, she was adopted. She was born in British Columbia and then eventually adopted by a really amazing couple. Interesting. Her father is a medical doctor at Mayo Clinic. Her mother is a nurse and – her A score is just a one from the adoption. Yes. <laughs> and what is yours? Mine, I think mine's about a seven. Yeah, I would say seven <laughs> to nine. Somewhere, somewhere in there, depending on how you liberally paint it. Right. So we're talking about a, it's called the Adverse Childhood Experience Score uh, based on a Kaiser study here in California where, lo and behold, a bunch of doctors went, 
hey, we noticed that all these people that are sick and having mental health issues and overutilizers of the medical system seem to have had troubled childhood. Isn't that's just extraordinary. Right. I, I mean, I, when they came up with that study, I was like, hey, you guys, right, really? You're, you're just noticing this? You know, the um, Vessel van der Kolk, do you know him, the trauma guy? I do not. Read Vessel van der Kolk. Very, yeah. My wife does. Yeah. He, um, he has been very frustrated for decades trying to implore the psychiatric community to understand the impact of adverse childhood experiences and trauma. Right. And, and he actually thinks we have a, have a – Diagnostic spectrum just based on childhood trauma. There should be a separate sort of diagnostic category, and I don't disagree with that. No. But but in any point, you know, finally, this, and this the ACE thing was really from the medical side, where the medical people finally went, oh, this, uh, huh? Not something, right? Like no shit, yeah. Jesus. One one of the things I love about being a therapist is I'll, I'll hear someone say, oh oh, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, parent separation. And I'll pull up the adverse childhood scale. I'm like, look, if somebody has four of these, they're more likely to have an alcohol problem, a drug problem, relationship problems, work problems, chronic heart disease problems. Yeah, four and five is where you really start to get the real deal stuff. Right. Uh, that's everything. Everything starts to go up. Yep. Smoking use, uh, violent, everything just starts going up like crazy. Right. And, yep. then they, and, then, and then they get to learn like, oh, those weren't any fault of my own. And they also weren't not a problem, right? Because so many, the other thing our brain does with the trauma is go a divorce. I'm, like, why? I'm, like, I'm glad my parents are separate. I'm exactly. glad they were fighting all the time. Oh, really? So the fighting didn't affect you either. Then so denial, you know, yeah, denial, and and but it's it. You know, I believe it's a big part of denial is, of course, everything's organic. But there's an organic piece to denial that we just sort of we deny right. as, as professionals because I, my favorite thing used to be when when. Uh, a patient would come in for treatment. We you know we do two, three new patients a day, and my nurse and I would always go into the room and we'd go, "What, what do you think is going on here?" We look at the tump. Here's uh, all kinds of stuff, horrible things going on, and uh, we sit down with the patient. And go, "Why are you here?" And and uh, here he the men particularly would always go, "Oh, you know, I'm just sick. I'm doing this for me this time. I'm just sick and you don't know what it's like to live like that. I'm sick and tired. I'm sick and tired." And I open the the uh, chart and go, "How about this?" Order from the court where the judge sent you directly to me. Does that have anything to do with why you're here? Right. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, there's that. I mean, there's that. But really, I'm here for me. It's like they, they literally – I don't think they were lying. I think they just don't perceive right. the horrible circumstances around their addiction. Right. Because it's so, it's so profound and so predictable the way they would come in in just abject denial about, about what got them there. And they would perceive it as, well, it's just me coming in because it's time. Right. It's really something. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating. And, and the same thing is true of trauma. We sort of, we just sort of pretend, you know, we've dealt with it. We really, it's we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to access that. It was, it was so horrible that we left it behind. But in leaving it behind, you leave a piece of yourself behind too, and that has to come forward, or it will find a way to express itself. Yeah, it will manifest. It will manifest. somehow. Yeah. And do you have trouble getting people to understand that? I think with everybody, it just takes time. I. Like I tell every client, it's like the number one thing that's going to be helpful is a therapeutic alliance that you feel comfortable to say. Why? What do you tell them? What if they go, oh, I can do it myself. I'm a stoic. <laughs> I do meditation. Oh, people, yeah, people, people say that a lot. I, these days, it's right. like uncanny how much I get. Into, I hear that. Right. And, and, I, and I don't want to diminish that stuff because it's good. You know, I'm a Ryan Holiday fan and I think mindfulness is good. It's not therapy. Right. What do you tell them? Yeah. So – yeah, at that point, I'm just validating. So you think you got it all on your own, yeah. and just build and just investing into them, investing into them, and not try to to judge them don't or confront anything, and not confront it until that relationship they're solid and they don't think that I'm gonna use it against them or abandon them or hurt them. 
And once but, they feel safe, then those then they start to kind of unpack those secrets. Interesting, uh, including myself too. That's how you In were. Therapy. That's how you were as well. That's yeah. how everybody is. And, and how do you um, do? You have any perception any uh, about how you said your adolescents and young adults are really your thing, right? Are they different in any way from your perspective from previous generations? Are you, or are they trending anything you're seeing that you know, we might not know that you would know because you're seeing it clinically? I don't. I don't. I. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if I can answer that specifically. But one thing I am confident is we, in this society, our culture, and our generations before us are unemotionally intelligent, and we're just passing that on. So, Do you think that's unique to this country? Unique to? I think that's worldwide. Worldwide. Uh, I I have a feeling. My my own opinion is you're right, but that it's a particularly acute here, uh, and I'm not. Yeah. Part of it is that <laughs> I've said this before on other podcasts that you know who who settled this country a bunch of religious zealots and people being prosecuted and mm-hmm. alcoholics and right. people thought it was a great idea to jump on a galley and. Risk life and limb to go risk life and limb again with the natives and Native Americans. It's like who right. kind of nuts came over here? And then the really nutty ones said, "Let's get on a wagon and go that way. Let's go west." Right. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, we 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 don't necessarily screen for mental health here. Let's put it that way. No. In terms of who arrives and how we get them here and that kind of thing. Um, so it makes sense to me that we'd be worse. And by the way, we we have a whole different set of values than say Italy, where it's family and community and these things that right. really foster mental health. We, we've we've forsaken all that, right? But I do believe there is a swing in the culture, and you've probably been a part of this. Uh, that people are starting to uh, respect, and the stigma around mental health is going down. It's starting to be shown in media and songs. Yeah, I think it is, which I is really great. Particularly addiction too, right? although it's still we're still woefully not where I want to be. Right. And these things all come with you know unintended consequences. It's kind of interesting to me now. I'm I'm seeing improvements in some areas and. And Adam's always quick to remind me that it's come with a cost. Right. Like I, I've always felt that the female brain was a was a something we needed at the time. You know, and now he's like, oh, now we're all chicks. Now everybody now we're, there's no male presence, and we need some of that too. Right. And I, he kind of right. He's right. Yeah. Uh, there's things. There's. I mean, there's a reason we have this developmental trajectory evolutionarily because there's benefits to both. Right. And uh, we shouldn't be forsaking one for the other. But I do think that. What we're talking about, which is a more of the emotional brain, has right. real value now. Right. And again, I think our culture places so much emphasis on cognitive intelligence, how much, what, what grade you got, what's yeah. two plus two is four, know all these things, but little to no emphasis, at least in my generation, has been placed on emotionally intelligence. Now, wh- where do we put you at? Gen X or uh, are you Gen y, y. Y. You're Gen Y. Yeah. And, and so you're, but you're treating millennials for the most part, would you say? I, you know, my caseload varies. The youngest child I had was three. And I think Oof. the oldest person I work with right now is, is in their 50s. Wow. That's right. quite a spectrum. And that wasn't by choice. I, I, and I even mentioned that. I was like, this is not what I'm experiencing. And they were adamant about it. And Who's they? Uh, a few, a few, a few of people I see that are older. The, the patients, like, I yeah. want you to treat me. Okay. Yeah, and then they've been a delight to work with, and it's been f- just phenomenal to see their growth. Because I'll just tell you, I had a naive thought that people that are older can't adults change. can't change. It, it gets harder after sixty-five. It right. does. Uh, I, I've tried to treat some alcoholics at that age. Some okay. Some right. Uh, <laughs> it depends on the person. I like everything else. Right, but I definitely am optimistic that people can change. Definitely. Yeah, I, I've read. I, I know there's a lot of literature out there on 
older, older than what you're treating, saying they can change too. I just right. my experience has been like it's it's hard, right? It's hard. I also want to remind you again about our friends at Health IQ. They use science and data to secure lower rates for people like you. On their life insurance, people who take care of themselves, maybe you're a runner, a cyclist, into CrossFit, watching your diet, Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have lower risk for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. No duh. And why shouldn't you be compensated for that? And why should you bear the risk of people who are not looking out for themselves? Health IQ takes the customers through the entire process of applying. The policy is then underwritten by one of the top insurance partners. But these savings are exclusive to Health IQ. You will not find them anywhere else, and you must qualify to get that special rate. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash Drew, not Dr. Drew, just Drew, to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz, depending on your score, as well as some other related qualifying factors. You could save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. Again, that is healthiq.com slash Drew. Let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. No commitment, and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthy. One more time, that's H-E-A-L-T-H-I-Q, healthiq.com slash D-R-E-W. Well, if you like my show, you're going to love Dish with Trish, hosted by Trisha Paytas, a new podcast here at Podcast One. Amazing guests, both Shane Dawson and Jeffrey Starr have stopped by to talk to Trisha about everything from relationships to gossip to feuds. Nothing off the table when you dish with Trish. If you haven't had a chance to listen, you've got to catch up on this podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Podcast One, Apple Podcast, many other podcast app, wherever you get your podcast. New episode every week. Um, so let's, let's dial back to now you're in trauma therapy and you're getting more education and you meet your wife. Yeah. Did that, was that an evocative, you know, when you get really started to connect with somebody for real? Yeah. Not just the intensity and all that stuff. Yeah. I think with her, like the first, well, I, first I, we hung out and we're, we're just work related and I found out she's ski and, and I'm a, I'm a snowboarder and I was like, Hey, you want it? She's new to the area. She just moved to start her grad program. And I was like, Hey, you want to go skiing sometimes? crickets <laughs> and, then, and then i was like okay strike one and then the next time i hung out i was like um she, i found out she was a christian and i was like well you want to go check out a church sometime and she said yes so we went out to church and this was probably the first time i ever didn't try to like sell myself and and i, I just S- I sell yourself or proselytize you tell me you know were you talking were you, were you busy talking about what a, what a spiritual person you were no, I think well, no. Just when you sell yourself, like I don't know what I've achieved and, oh, oh, and what it. I've got it. conquered and got how got I, I could be perceived this way. I think I, I was the most. I think like the most real with her. And then we went out at the brunch after that. And then by the end of the night, we're on Alki. You probably, you probably were like, oh, because I would imagine having real feelings would bring feelings in your neck. Like choking, like oh no! Definitely in the past, but after lots of therapy, you were good. I was good. Yeah, good. But yeah, and then, but yeah, the first night we hung out, it just we both just didn't want it to end, and we just looked forward to seeing each other. And yeah, and you were, and you didn't have any of your old stuff come up. You were able to go with it. Thankfully, that's incredible. Um, I think I think something that I, I I teach my clients and something I've taught myself too, and, and with counseling is is. You get those compulsive behaviors, yeah. and then okay, and you think about what to do at that highest intensity, and then it's like, well, then what? Mm. And then think that through further, and what are some possible consequences that may or may not happen? And did a lot of that, just kind of over and over, and thinking through 
of making mistakes. And it's like, it does not seem worth it. it, it it's sort of a self-soothing mechanism for you. Definitely. A coping mechanism for sure. Yeah. I, see, I don't think I could do that to myself, even no matter how much I thought it through. Because I, I have a little bit of a brain, I have cognitive emotional disconnect. I've seen you fired up lately about some t- oh, hot topics. God. What do you think of that? I think I think you're you're getting people's attention. There's I, a problem. Uh, and, there is a problem. Right. Is there not? There's a major problem. You, you see, diagnostically, you can see what that is. Yes. Yeah, Pretty simple. Right. And yeah, in Seattle, their tents are popping up, RVs are popping up. And not because there's no housing. Right. And they actually did a study in Seattle where they interviewed a whole encampment and did the A scale with them. And they 50% admitted they had trauma. What I'm learning in my practice is that. I'll, most people have trauma and have no idea. Of course. You have to ask the question the certain. We have right. to be very skilled in the interview. And I'm not talking about leading the witness. I'm saying you have to go back around three or four times asking specifics. Right. Like you, it's, and you've had this experience. You go, so was there any violence in your childhood? No, no violence. Well, did your parents argue? Yeah, like every parent they argued. Well, did they ever pick something up and throw it? All the time. Well, was the yelling kind of scary? Well, I got used to it. I mean, that is really serious yeah. domestic it, violence. It, it, it was normal and to me. It started with nothing. No, yeah. not, no violence in my house. Right. Uh, and or you ever any physical abuse? No, why? They just had discipline like anybody else. Right. Oh, well, how did they discipline you? Ah, they just, you know, they maybe smacked me around a little bit. Like, well, did they ever pick something? I literally had one. This, I went through this one patient and I said, your mom, your, your mom, so your mom disciplined you. Okay. And she ever picked something up? I guess something. Anyway, she run. Yeah, I, I, three more times to go around. She goes, "Oh yeah, yeah." One time she picked up an axe and came after me. I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> Except for the time she came with the axe, everything else was fine. No, no, no physical. I right. mean, really, all every day. Gary's laughing. Yeah. You know this. Every day right. I would go through that kind of stuff. That's why I would never settle with the first go round. You know, right. did you have any ever child experience? Like well, everybody's no, right? And, yeah. and it was normal to them. I, I, I mean, I could count. Um, I can just think of a lot of clients that I worked with for at least a year until they finally shared a secret because right. they just and Usually in my experience, it's not even so much of a secret. They just don't know how to think about it, and their brain doesn't want them to think about right. it. So it's denial plus you know, this, this lack of uh, cognitive awareness. Right. By the way, it makes me think of how, how hard it is to be you. Why? Because you, I mean, you told me many years ago, I was like, yeah, I had these dreams about prison. And you're like, well, what else? And I told you, you know, yeah, that sounds like PTSD. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I was like, it, it doesn't interfere with any domain of my life. But, but I, I think I heard uh, you had some woman on your, uh, one of your last uh, podcast, and she was talking about how she is a porn star and loves like the, the, the beat. I don't even know what it's called. The, the, the BDSM. BDSM. Yes, thank you. Hey, we talked to who, who was this we were talking I'm about? I'm looking. I, yeah. Was it maybe one of your After Dark or one oh, of those? Oh, it was probably an After Dark. Thing, right. Yeah. And yeah. then you're asking about in the past, and she's like, oh, I was hit by a, a nun. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, but that, but that I will tell you about her. Right. That she had some really interesting stuff that I, I didn't want to get into on the show. So, But it, it just seems clear, like, you can say, like, hey, maybe that impacts some of these choices. And for me, uh, you told me a long time ago that I had trauma related to prison and I was in denial yep. and that just manifested in my life uh, in a major way recently. This is what was going on with that one, which is more organic stuff. Got Interesting, it. right? Uh, so there are, you have to really think clinically around everybody because there's different things for different people and some right. is organic and some is emotional, some is environmental and some is genetic. Right. And you have to really be able to measure these things out. Right. 
so but yeah, but just to clarify, like you you hear people and you, you based on knowledge and experience, like well, that diagnostically sounds like this, and most people are just like, no, nah. no, yeah, I know they don't want to hear it. They don't do not want to hear it, <laughs> including myself. Yeah, but look, it's painful. But, but you, you but you walk away from stuff and you make it your own. You keep you it stays with you. You mull it over. You think about it. And, right. And the last one was thirteen years that finally got taken care of. So what do you mean? So yeah, I um, actually I was working with an older woman. And she came in one day and just burst into tears. And um, we asked what was wrong. She told me what happened. It was some trauma like 20 years ago. And and I was like, well, when did that happen? And she was like, "Uh, you know what? I think it was the same month we're in. And she looked at her phone. It was was the exact same day 20 years ago. And uh, we finished up the session. And afterwards, I was like, I wonder if I have anything like that. And I started thinking. I was like, January. I tend to have something happen. And I, again, didn't really understand it. And then I knew um, I've had, like, I went to the hospital on multiple occasions. I've uh, sabotaged multiple relationships, um, just interfered with many things in my life. Uh, My back surgery started this in January. Mm. And then I was like, well, what happened in January? And the only thing I think of was I was released from prison in January. And I was like, well, that actually is a good day. Uh, Most people I talked to say wasn't going into prison worse than coming out and i would agree but there definitely was something there so i knew it was coming back around last year and i prepped for the january and all of a sudden i just it just hit me um the day before i was released so 13 years later the day before this like a year ago and i just started crying and weeping i was like what is happening i'm like oh it's that anniversary date so i was like it's time to go back to counseling uh reluctant and i just started talking like i think i need to talk about me getting released from prison but i don't think it's a big deal and then my therapist was like, well, can you tell me about it? And then I just say it and I just, again, bawl. And I'm like, I don't even know why I'm crying. And then, again, every session just uh, just was painful, painful. And the nightmares. So you told me a long time ago, you probably have PTSD. So I do have nightmares of prison. I even wrote them in the book. And then I would wake up and I would still be in prison. And I didn't know if I ever got out or I never, or I was still in there. Oh, or they never let me out. So then through the process of counseling... I realized that right before I got out, the guards or the correction officers called me into their office and they're like, hey, there's a mistake in your paperwork. <gasps> You're not going to get out until another year from now. Oh, my God. Right. And I don't know if, if your viewers can comprehend that, but just imagine going to jail for one day right now and then saying, hey, you actually got to do two more days, but it's a one more year. So I, I was just shocked when I heard that. I, and I think more, more so I was paranoid. I thought there was like a conspiracy to oh, hold yeah. me in. Oh, yeah. And then... Fortunately, thankfully, I was let out on time, um, and then now I'm in counseling going, okay. And then I realized those dreams I had, again, they were never about prison. They were always about getting out. Uh-huh. And uh, and I look back and um, – Wait, I'm sorry. What what happened? Were the guards fucking with you? No, I, they just made a mistake. So I, they legitimately the, thought you were staying in, and then somehow and then, in that day they realized they had made an error? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And, I'm, and I'm 21 years old. Like, what? Like, oh, how does this even happen? And, yeah, and, I, and I was pretty devastated. So I think, uh, yeah, so then after therapy, those dreams started to change. Uh, uh, the last one was I was the, there's, there's the correctional officers. I could see them. And this time, rather than having those soul, like those just sorrowful faces, they were all smiling. And my uh, nephew was there and they gave him a toy. Uh, and then yeah, and they just they lightened up. And then eventually the last time I shared this story to my uh, therapist, it was peace. And then come this January, just no anxiety, no peace, no expecting the worst thing to come around the corner. Now, 
I, I, I'm going to ask you a technical question. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thanks. Um, do we call that supportive psychotherapy you got or emotion-focused therapy or what, what was the process? Because it really was – it was sort of trauma-focused. Definitely trauma-focused. was not CBT anymore. Yeah. Because you I, were allowed to – she was metabolizing the emotions with you. Right. Right? I, I consider that emotion-focused therapy. Definitely. I, yeah. I think it was emotion-focused and trauma-focused. Yeah. And you asked a question too like – uh, I forget the question you asked, but for me, oh yeah, about being two people. Oh, you can I could do it on my own. Like I've been in school for seventeen years. I, I've been doing this for over a decade. You still can't do it. I can't own. do it by no, myself. No, no, no one can. And Your I, brain won't do that, right? And I've shared my story. I've written about this to thousands of people about getting out of prison and saying funny stories about it. Never blinked an eye. But as I'm saying it in this like contained therapeutic place, yeah, just the emotions yeah. just came Flows. raging out. Yeah, and. and you're pretty good at entering that frame now. Let's talk about that a little bit because people don't understand the importance of the therapeutic frame, right? Like I, I go – I was in therapy so many years that when I, I can step into a therapeutic frame and I just – I become like a hypnotized patient. I'm like completely in whatever's going on. I'm, I'm deep. So you may be susceptible to hypnosis? I don't know that I am or not. I know that – I know how to behave in a therapeutic frame. I know how to feel, how to, how to connect to myself and the other person and – and I, I suppose if I were in with somebody that was non-empathic, it'd be, I probably wouldn't. But a, a properly trained therapist, I can just fall right into this zone that I'm pretty familiar with. Sounds years. like your guards are down. Um, it it feels I, – I, it, it, I, I don't know how to describe it except as sort of hypnotic for me because I feel like I just go into a different state. Right. And the state is more embedded in my body and my feelings and aware of the other person. It's just – I don't know how else to describe it, but but I know when I'm there. You sound you sound aware. Yeah, when I I'm not always there, but I know when I am there. Right. And and I've noticed I can get I can get into something like that too, have, just having conversations with people that you know do that for like, like my friend Gail Saltz, a psychiatrist. She's been on this show a number of times, and I've had conversations with her where she's so good at being a she's a psychoanalyst. Right, she pulls you right into that spot. <laughs> Howard Stern pulled me into that spot. Is that right? Yeah, because he's been a, he's been a analysis and in psychoanalysis or for 30 years or wow. something. And that's how he conducts his interviews now. People will tell you. It's like he they'll say he think, draws things out of you. No, he's just putting you in that frame where things just flow out of you. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I remember when the first time I sat on his couch, I just thought to myself, oh, this is like – this is familiar. I, I know exactly what this feels like. I can do this. And then you don't really remember what the hell you say. Right. Because it's just – again, it's flowing and that's – that. that intersubjective space. Right. I'm still having a hard time seeing Howard Stern in therapy, but okay. <laughs> well, he was, he's was he been in analysis for many, many, many years. I'm impressed. Yeah. yeah. Like like f- four days a week at one point. Wow. Yeah. So I'm good jealous. Thing. Yeah, good um, for him. I know. I'd love to go to analysis. Be so, it seems indulgent to me, but the re- one of the reasons I don't go into analysis, I don't find that... <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. I don't find that people that do deep analysis are better people. Okay, and if I looked at them as better people, somehow more more like they were just being better, I think I would do it. But I don't know that they're 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 more attuned to all kinds of stuff that I might not be aware of. But I don't make them better necessarily, right? You know, it's just, that, and so I'm not sure I want to spend all that time, right, doing that. It'd be fascinating. I would love it, you know, running around your head like that, right? Yeah. So what's what's going forward? What do you want to do uh, going forward? How, how, what should people look for? Where should they go if they want you as a therapist? Give me all that. Oh, uh, my wife and I, we, we have our own private practice in Seattle and Bellevue, a nearby city, and we're completely full. Uh-oh. And yeah, we have a waiting list. And it's like, on one hand, it's like- Can you imagine? I, what do you mean? Does that blow your mind? Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. I bet. Never in a million years. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, because I, I was just telling people like I've been working towards this goal in my career to reach, and I've met it, and now I don't know what to do now because I don't know how to manage the overflow. And we're thinking about uh, uh, buying more commercial real estate or get, get I, another high quality person in with you guys. Yeah, we opened up or maybe specialize. You know, somebody that can do neurobiofeedback or different modalities. Yeah, one thing we did right after we got married was uh, put an offer on some commercial real estate. And we have five or six, well, probably now like eight or eight or nine a new client uh, therapists in the community oh. working with us. Oh, yeah, and we're officially in with you guys, or nope? They have their own some, independent contracts. Just sharing space with you. Yeah, they're just uh, renting space from us, yeah. and then we're about to expand that again. So, uh, but yeah, we're I don't know. Long term, I'm thinking an own, an own uh, a behavioral therapist like clinic. Uh, integra- yeah, I was going to say integrated health. Y- yes, because that's what's needed right now. Are teams. Right. Not a lot of good teams out there. Uh, and some of the stuff, if it's if, if we actually start treating the stuff that's on the streets, that's not one-on-one stuff. That's team teams surrounding very sick people. Right. And uh, we're going to need to do that at some point. Right. Yeah. People need nutritionists, yeah. massage, yeah, therapy, the whole gamut, M- medical care. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've been advocating. So you, t- you criticize my plan. Here's my plan for homeless. It, it's a little different I, in California. I criticize it. You can now. I'm asking you for, oh, okay. for a critique. Okay. Um, I was going to say. It's I, different in California than Seattle. It's a little different. Okay. So we have Prop 47 here, which makes drug use and drug trafficking and stealing to support your drug habit legal. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Especially so, especially as a, a convicted convict. Right. 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 So we, but uh, to me, it's murder because you're, com- you're, you're allowing drug addicts to use until they die. If you want drug addicts to just use, we'll create environment, safe houses where you have nurses and you administer their drugs and you let them use. That's fine with me. I don't care about that. But just letting them use on the streets is murder. That's murder. I mean, in Portugal, where they legalize drugs, they don't just legalize drugs. They create environments of care. Right, right. Yeah, it's like we're, we're so nuts in this country. So we'd have to modify Prop 47 in the state or, or something to create some leverage to get people into treatment because drug addicts will use until they die otherwise. Right. Right. Okay, you agree with that? Yeah. I, again, I was a criminal. If you <laughs> if you get away with something, you don't just stop. No. You push it forward. Keep going, especially right. if you're a drug addict. Yeah, because until then it's your drug addiction wants to win. The drug addiction, you want to use drugs. Exactly. So, two conservatorships. Don't you think we should have more conservatorships so people are severely mentally ill? Can you explain that further? Uh, people potentially either family or court appointed that help you stay in the system until you stabilize the point that you can be on your own. Yeah. Whatever I, that means. Yeah, I I definitely think that is an option. It's I mean, simple, as opposed right? to as opposed to die on the street. Right. <laughs> I'm not saying everybody is I'm not saying the conservatives have the right to hold people against their will. I'm right. saying they have they have an obligation to see to they're engaged in the system until they're sufficiently stable to get out. Very simple. Yeah, I I think that makes sense. All right, that's my that's my other move. And then I think we have to gr- the term "gravely disabled" in this state essentially doesn't exist anymore. We have harm to self or other, and that's it. Right, gravely disabled right. needs to be reestablished as a real thing, and people who are gravely disabled need to be stabilized for a few weeks. So if and, you know until they're not gravely disabled, right, not just held for three days just because they have to not be gravely disabled, or they be go under conservatorship. 
Make sense? It makes sense. These are my big plans. They're yeah. huge. They're fantastic. Yeah. I mean, again, like you have been a monumental figure in my life and well, change, so I defer all well, these. Oh, no, no. Ex- I want some critique. You're a, you're a professional now that's succeeding. I want you to get, critique me. I think I think my wife and I, we, we do micro. We, we see from the individual perspective, yeah. and you're well, looking good. from like a well, holistic. Well, I do an individual right, stuff. Right, right. So based up, and I would like, am I missing something in, so far? So again, I, I probably just not the best person knows all these things, but I know when we drive through Seattle, and see these homeless encampments yeah. and see the, the the garbage and see the drugs and it's like something is not working we need to do something and right. i agree with you that it's not a housing problem no. in seattle uh uh amazon donated get a billion dollars microsoft 500 million dollars guess what people are still homeless of course the, the, uh, for it, it you would not have a job if four walls treated mental illness, right? Right. right. Or I would not ever need to build a team if four walls treated drug addiction. Right. Be done. Just right. Put them in four walls. Done. No, it does nothing. In fact, in fact, the fatality rate would go up if you put drug addicts in four walls, right? Because they're going to really start using that. So I'm just predicting that. So okay, environments of care. I would love to see like communities, like with with you know with vocational rehab, and everyone has responsibilities for the community, like a community based, resource based treatment center. Right. When I see yeah. people have a purpose, right, that helps that's majorly. Right. So that's so so environment of care. So if Prop 47, grave the disabled, conservatorships. Um, the, the grave the disabled is in the state center of California. There's something called SB 640 that would immediately do it. Families are begging them to pass it so they could bring their loved ones home. Tell them to f off the state. <laughs> the state is a nightmare. Um, okay, what are my other things I want to do? I want to I want to lift the IMD exclusion. You know, Medi-Cal will not cover chronic mental illness. I did not know that. Yeah, we need to lift that. <laughs> that's an insane thing that's been right. in place since 1964. Um, I'm telling you right now, you got my vote. Okay, okay. Hey, by the way, I, everybody I've talked to. Is well, like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Not right now. Not right now. But I may just, be forced to, just morally, just forced to do something. Right. And I, I don't know. Uh, just knowing what I know about you, you are a hard worker. You are super intelligent. You are motivated to be there for people and help people. I would see you as an amazing, if you ever get well, there. We'll see. Maybe that's anathema to what's needed in government. You know, who knows? I think it'd be awesome. I and mean, you already saw the news go crazy about just speculating I that know, you're that considering. Was so crazy. I think so, I think people want to see you do it. That was fake news. Someday, perhaps someday, but not necessarily right now. All my right. family came down to me like a ton of bricks. My kids were like, "We well, didn't prepare us for this. No, what about us?" And I'm like, right. oh, yeah, no, don't worry. I'm not going to do this." Very thoughtful. And uh, but I may at some point do it. So okay, that's five of my points. I think I've left one thing out here. Let me see. We certainly need more psychiatrists and mental health professionals in this state particularly. Do you guys have trouble getting psychiatric referrals? Yeah, we're, we're at a shortage. We're at a shortage yeah. for mental health now. Really and bad. people trying to get medication, it's not easy. It's really bad. And yeah. it, on one hand, that's like it's a good thing because people are now trying to seek the support. But now I don't think people are equipped to manage it. it. Yeah, to manage it. And, and again, psychiatry, where I guess, do you use telemedicine for your psychiatry at all? Oh, we don't prescribe any medication. No, no, but I mean, you have people, I'm sure, that need psychiatric consults. Do you? Can you get them? Do you need to use telemedicine? Is there? Is it hard to get them? Yeah, I think telehealth is becoming more popular. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's, I think that's the thing that sort of it has to move into position because we got no other option. Right. It's not yeah. ideal, but it's something. Right. And when people can't get transport and there's traffic, you just got to do it. Right. And, and you know, and, the, and to be fair, the, the psychiatric assessment is really kind of. It, can, it, it it's not the same kind of assessment you're doing and trying to connect with somebody and develop right. a relationship. So it's really just a medical evaluation. Right. You kind, of, kind of do that through a, through a screen. I'm trying to think of my other months. IMD exclusion, <laughs> conservatorship, gravely disabled, environments of care, Prop 47, 
Well, those are the important ones anyway. That's important stuff. And if we if we could get those things done, then it, we'd be in much much better shape. I'm a believer. Yeah, I believe. All right. So listen, uh, you know I I glory in your progress. Uh, Thank I love you. it. I just I'm so excited about it. It's it's people like yourself that. It just inspires, inspire anyone that is in the helping profession. Right. You know, and uh, I have the great privilege of seeing lots of people inspire. But you're a special inspiration. Uh, and I can't quite – I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. But it was from the beginning, whatever that is. It's, it's always been there. When I met you and read the book and I was like, what? Something, something very unique about this story and this guy. And you've continued to – be a unique person and be a unique contribution. And uh, I'm so glad. I'm so excited that you're able to make a difference for other people because I, I just knew it. I knew it when I first met you. <laughs> I, I, I knew it. <laughs> I appreciate your kind and, words and, and all of your and, support. And there's something about and, – and do me a favor. Do some thinking about your your. You know, I think I've talked to you about this before. The, the moments of change to me are fascinating because you know you come up against re- resistant patients all the time. We all the all time. Do. And and that that change from not seeing it to being willing is to, that's the magic to me. That's if we could bottle that, if we could right. have a specific evidence based intervention into that, it would be it would massively change everything. Now, pers- right now, I sort of go from the assumption that it's novel relationships that give people an ability to see themselves through a new pair of glasses, and an, a novel relationship is a therapeutic relationship, right? Because you, you 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 navigate it differently than a usual relationship. Yes. You, but yeah. but many many people won't open themselves to that, won't access that. So I'm wondering if there's something else that happened to you, and maybe it's a may, and it might. My brain immediately goes to this. It might be that we all need a, a, a better spiritual connection because that maybe that was it. That that made you know that maybe the one ingredient that, that made all the difference. It made a tremendous yeah. difference, and especially even in our relationship as well. Like yeah. I I honestly thought I could not be in a healthy relationship. I never would have found a million years, and now I can be very thankful for my wife. Yes, and, our, and, I'm, and I'm really happy, happy for both of you. Yeah. I, I, but think about that. Is there a way we can bottle that or motivate that or get people back to the, that, whatever that is? Actually, I do have some ideas. Yeah? And I have been writing out some uh, some bullet points of a, of a manuscript I want to write about like innovation of mental health. Great. That I would love to collaborate with you in Done. the future. Done. Or I'll read or whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm happy to do I'm, it. I'm use your expertise. I throw in what I got, put all the re- the current research, and show people what's really happening and how it works. Because I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of, of change in therapy and, and oh, emotional yes, intelligence. Do. Oh yes, they do. That, the, the EQ is in. Was I talking? Did we talk about EQ yet today? Yeah, we do. And I did right because I was talking about it with my son just yesterday too. Oh, cool. He was saying that you know emotional intelligence was not um, valued growing up, and not at all. And he's sort of recognizing he's got a decent EQ and he ought to use it. I was like, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, one of the fascinating things I see is like parents, when their kid's crying about can't get a candy and they're just, stop crying, stop crying. It's like you're not allowing your child to express themselves appropriately from the get-go. Let them regulate. Your job is to be present. Right, and validate. Yep. Support. All right, my friend. Good to see you. Is there a website or anything you want to refer people to or anything? Phone number? Uh, um, I'm put, focusing on the boy with the gun is still available okay. uh, and I'm starting a nonprofit called uh, it's basically utilizing action sports to focus on the seven dimensions of wellness and connect people and uh, increase self-efficacy and emotional regulation and emotional intelligence. Great. Yeah, but our, but our, yeah, 
private practice. I wish I, I would love to do that. We're just we were booked out. And I'm going to shine a little light on self-efficacy. We're not saying self-esteem. We're saying self-efficacy, right. which is the ability to function in the world. And that's where the self-esteem movement went wrong. It should be about right. self-efficacy, which sometimes means not feeling so good about yourself and challenging all that. Exactly. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank and, you. Uh, we'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.